Welcome to Lips on Life. I'm your host, Jessica Lips, and I'm pleased to welcome Jenny Jaffe. Jenny is a New York-based writer, comedian, and performer. She has written for College Humor, shows on MTV and VH1 Online, and publications including Vulture, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. As a performer, she can be seen in feature films, including Punk's Dead. On top of her successful career, in 2014, Jenny started a nonprofit called Project UROK, which is dedicated to helping those struggling with mental illness. With all that Jenny is up to, we could talk about a number of things today, but Project You Are Okay does such important work that I want to focus our conversation on learning more about it and also about Jenny and her background. Jenny, thanks for being here. Ah, oh, that was a really nice introduction. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you. It was so thorough. <laughs> So you're New York-based now, but have you always been in New York? Short answer, no. I grew up in California. Um, Where in California? uh, In the Bay Area. And then I've been here for eight years. Yeah, I've been here for eight years. What brought you to New York? Uh, I went to NYU, so I moved here to go to school. What'd you study at NYU? I went to Tisch School of the Arts for dramatic writing, and my focus was on TV writing. So literally, I graduated with a major in sitcoms. And what'd you do after graduation? Well, during school, I was uh, on this sketch group called Hammercats. And um, somebody, uh, and we, you know, we used to perform a lot at places like UCB and um, at these sort of sketch festivals. And and somewhere along the way, uh, someone had seen a sketch that I'd written and recommended me uh, to college humor. So during fall of my senior year at NYU, I actually um, was hired as a staff writer at College Humor. So I would go to work during the day and then I'd finish classes at night. So I, I scheduled it all out. I made it work. I don't know that I was able to dedicate my full attention to either, but um, that was a very cool sort of little um, introduction to the world of comedy writing. So I was at College Humor for two years. Uh, Two years after graduation. I think it was a year after graduation I was still there, which was a nice way to delay the crisis that everybody eventually has. And you'd like to think, and I think I had convinced myself that because I'd had this sort of early success and hadn't really received a lot of professional rejection, I I sort of had this idea like, I'm going to skip that post-collegiate downward spiral. And the reality is no one avoids it. It just is going to hit you differently at different times. Eventually, uh, college humor downsized and I was part of that downsizing and I found myself without anything to do for the first time um, post-grad and it was just a really difficult, rude awakening. Um, And then I was hired to write for the show on MTV, Nikki and Sarah Live, and only did a season there. And after that, it was definitely a pretty big shock once again to my system of just like, okay, like things don't always work out and you can't sort of rest on your laurels or rely on anything to be a permanent source of income, but more importantly, of stuff to do with yourself. And I got pretty good at like figuring out, okay, you have an infinite amount of days in front of you with no structure to speak of. What do you do? So what did you do? Well, so I started doing a lot of freelance writing. Um, In there, I wrote for, like you said, VH1 Online. I started writing for Vulture. Um, I wrote for Bustle for a while. Like you're a young New York comic type. 
You perform some nights, but your days are more or less spent wishing a magical phone call would come and save you from yourself. I guess I just started really trying to think like, okay, what's the thing I want to put into the universe? And I feel like people kept saying, well, no one knows who you are. Nobody knows what the thing you do is. And I think they all meant, well, what's your like comedic What's your Broad City? What's your Rachel Bloom's music videos? What's your like thing that you do? And I unfortunately (laughs) kind of didn't do the comedy route. I sort of went, well, I think I see a pretty good way I can help teens and young adults struggling with mental illness, which is not the logical jump. It was just the, oh, well, here's the thing I want to do with my time. And it took me kind of by surprise because it wasn't what I expected to sort of come out when I was reaching into the darkness for what the next thing was going to be. How did it come out? Slash, where did it come from? Was there an aha moment? So I had written this article for ExoJane about my experience in exposure therapy for a fear of throwing up when I was in high school. And it was something I just hadn't really thought to write about before. It wasn't really something I thought to really even talk about much before. It sort of felt like, my young adult and teenage years, which were in many ways great because I got incredibly lucky with a wonderful family and all of uh, the undeniable privilege that comes with having money and being white in America. And I don't want to gloss that over because I had access to all the treatment I needed. But in other ways, my my young adult and teenage years were kind of a nightmare for me because I was really sick. You know, I had really severe anxiety, really severe OCD, and stemming from those things, really severe depression. And where do you think those things came from? I think that my brain doesn't process serotonin the way that other people's brains are. So it's all physical. Yeah. I mean, I think mental illness is a physical illness and people don't think about it that way. And even for people where it's something that it it comes on later in life or when you think about something like PTSD, the way that that works is it resets the way your brain is wired. And it's all it's all physical processes. And uh, for me, it was an intrinsic physical process for me to have these uh extra set of things I was dealing with. And you were really cognizant of them at the time when you were in high school. Oh, yeah. Well, I had been officially diagnosed when I was 10. Um, But yeah, I was a really anxious kid. Um, And I started getting suicidal for the first time when I was around 10 years old. And that's not really, that's a pretty big red flag. And I luckily had um, parents who were in the medical world and my mom is actually a social worker and so they were able to see like this is not normal 10 year old behavior you know normal 10 year olds don't lack joy in life or will to live you know I've been in therapy since like before I can remember I think I was always in therapy because I couldn't sleep through the night um but when I was like 10, they took me to a psychiatrist for the first time and I was officially diagnosed and I was prescribed Prozac for the first time. And, you know, agree that there's a problem with overprescription in this country and that we see it as an easy fix and that people will go to a doctor, get prescribed, and it'll never sort of be addressed again. But for me, it was a lifesaver and it was proof positive that it was a chemical problem, which is why 
it was able to help so much. And unfortunately, um, the older you get in your teenage years, your body chemistry changes once again. And for me, that meant sort of resurgence of something that had been um, at least moderately more dormant. It's not like I've ever been super chill, but when I was in like sophomore year of high school, I really remember that being sort of the low point. Um, and the anxiety, you know, which had always been present, took a backseat almost to severe OCD. Was it OCD about a specific thing or about everything? So the way that OCD works, and I think this is something that's not really talked about a lot because OCD is something that has such visible components, um, is that one of the big pieces of OCD is that you're having these intrusive thoughts um, and they're just things you don't want to think and they're really violent and they're really horrible and and you're convincing their, yourself that you do something awful and it's, it's terrifying, and especially when you're a kid and your response to sort of the chaos going on in your head is often to ritualize and seek order in things around you. So I definitely had, you know, severe fear of germs. I didn't like touching things I thought other people could have touched. Didn't like touching doorknobs. That was a really big one for me. Didn't like eating unpackaged foods, like just stuff that I felt for whatever reason was contaminated was a really big fear for me. And yeah, it just is a cycle. And I was getting these horrible panic attacks. And a lot of the anxiety and OCD stuff affixed itself to this fear of vomiting. Everything in my life was guided by it. Like I stopped eating. I figured like, I, you know, if I do everything to eliminate even the slightest possibility that I will get sick, then I'll feel better. And the reality is there's no feeling better. OCD doesn't let you feel better. It's smarter than that. The OCD itself is always going to be one step ahead of you. And once you've eliminated one fear, um, and anxiety does this too, it's, it's got the next one ready to go. Um, and yeah, it's, it's exhausting. <laughs> Living in my head was occasionally is exhausting. Um, and then the response to that became, well, why would you continue to live in this head then? And that's when it got just very, very dark. And this was in 10th grade. Yeah. I mean, this was throughout high school, but like really the low point was 10th grade. Like 10th grade was just like, I stopped going to class. Basically, I failed a class. I, I was more or less in and out of school. Like I would, I just couldn't really be there. It was a really, really rough time. Um, and, you know, and then high school is rough on top of that um, anyway. So, uh, yeah, not not a banner year for me. So how did you overcome that or get out of it or get help? What happened in, in 10th grade and in high school to help you overcome that? Well, you know, I'd already, I'd, again, been in therapy, luckily, for years and um, had an amazing therapist through middle and high school um, who I still see when I go home. And she was really just a lifesaver. I went like twice a week and then I would go once a week to this um, psychopharmacologist who I'm also still in touch with. Um, and we really tinkered with my meds. We did a lot of um, sort of intense talk therapy type stuff. And uh, then we tried exposure therapy. That was sort of the next step. What is exposure therapy? So exposure therapy, the idea is that if you forcibly expose yourself to the thing you're most afraid of, it becomes less scary. And so for me, that was 
vomit and germs and just finding ways to like like watching videos of people throwing up or like touching the doorknobs I didn't want to touch. It was really stressful. And I, I wrote this whole piece for ExoJane about how I was sort of an exposure therapy dropout. I think it's a very helpful tool. And ultimately getting a stomach flu is what cured me of that particular um, anxiety. But I was not in the right mindset for it at the time. It wasn't anything that there was a one cure for. It's just, I, you know, and I talk about this a lot. Like it's not that it ever gets better when it's something you're going to live with forever. It's that you get better at dealing with it and you get like you're given the situation you're given, right? You're given your circumstances. And I think that it can be frustrating to feel like I this is going to be something I'm going to have to be aware of my whole life. But the reality is it doesn't interfere in my life the same way it used to. It interferes on very rare occasions. The more stressed I get, the more um it sort of flares up again. I still get panic attacks, but it's not the it's not the focal point of my life anymore. And that's the big difference. And and how'd you come to that place? I mean, that, so that was like it was really a combination of therapy and meds and um, and time and just seeing that I continued to get through it. I was really lucky. I had a very supportive family. I knew I couldn't. I, you know. I used to wish, this is so dark, this is about to get really dark, I used to wish that a truck would hit me or something so I wouldn't have to kill myself because I thought it would hurt their feelings less, um, which is... Oh, that's heavy. Yeah, that's really deep. heavy stuff. Um, but I was, I you know, people. a lot of people don't have that support and it, it really broke my heart. And the other thing that really helped, and this is a good tie-in back into your okay maybe, is... Um, I got really into comedy in that time. Like that was sort of, I was always into comedy and this is where it just like cemented is like the only thing that felt good to me was like watching old episodes of SNL, watching Stranger with Candy. You know, I like, I loved the old uh, Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie uh, Jeeves and Worcester because it like was so calming. I loved everything those guys did. Those guys are big heroes. And like Maria Bamford's stand up, like in all those things also, it's like, okay, well, Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie, I think both bipolar. I know Stephen Fry is. Maria Bamford is bipolar. Um, Stephen Colbert talks about having dealt with depression. These were all people where I could look at them and see, like, you have similar circumstances to the ones I've been given and the way you process them and the way you have come through them is something I can relate to. So I got really into comedy through that. And I feel like comedy really saved me. And I wanted to do that for somebody else. Like, why don't I just take this more direct route? Um, and it seemed like the thing I would have really loved when I was growing up would have been to see my peers talking about it or to see people talking about things in ways that didn't scare me and proof that they've gotten through it. And um, the hope that that means that I will too. So your okay sort of was born out of out of that. So tell us about what Project You Are Okay is. Mm -hmm. So Project You Are Okay is the nonprofit organization I founded in 2014. What we do is we provide a safe and welcoming environment in which people can talk about their experience of mental illness on camera. We're all dealing with something and it's on, you know, different scales and we deal with it through different lenses and we deal with it in different ways, but we all deserve to have our story told. And that's that's the thing. And in fact, you can do that on your website. Users, visitors to the website can create their own videos yeah. about their own stories. Yeah, there's um, instructions on how to do that on our website. 
uh, we really just want the only thing between somebody and feeling like their story is told uh, to be a camera. Teenagers are so brave. We targeted at teens, but we get videos from people all around the world who are like of all different ages. But we have gotten a pretty big response from teens and they're 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 just so cool and resourceful and I don't think they get enough credit. In fact, have there been any videos in particular that have stuck out at you that you could share today or any feedback you've gotten by by letter about your website or by email or other? Um, somebody wrote an open letter to me on Huffington Post uh, two weeks ago. And she's a woman uh, in her 20s who I've interacted with on Twitter and Facebook and we've sort of become friends. Um, and she's really wonderful and wrote such a like it was one of these things where it was so nice and so overwhelmingly wonderful that I almost couldn't read it and like what did she say just um about how how she felt like project UK helped save her life and I mean it's just you read something like that and it's like I've I was having a bad day and I was feeling like, you know, there's the constant worry when you do this kind of work. Like, is this actually making an impact? Like, am I deluding myself about this? And I I push through a lot of doubt about my abilities to do this and about whether or not this would be okay. And I push through a lot of um, stigma to make Project You Are Okay happen um, from people who told me exactly what they thought of it and exactly what they thought of a project like this. Uh, Were they negative? Yeah. About? Oh, I've gotten some... what? Why? Oh, there's always going to be haters. That's um, true. But the thing is, like, had there been, you know, had it been really legitimate criticism of like, I'm worried you're not doing a good enough job representing, you know, X, Y, and Z, like that would have been a totally different conversation. But when it's somebody just saying like, this isn't going to work, I'm like, S- watch, let's see. For those that are in a current state of depression or unhappiness or going through a tough time. What advice, what information, what do you want to impart to them? Um, Well, the first thing is that um, if you are interested in free or cheap mental health care, we have a lot of resources on our website under the resources tab, projectyouareok.org. And not just therapy finders, but also crisis lines for countries all around the world, um, different sites that'll just give you a little more insight into what you might be feeling. I guarantee we have a video that will resonate with you because we have so many. I think one of the big things is that do whatever it takes to keep yourself going because if you're not, if you're, if it's just a tough time and you're not feeling suicidal, I'll just let you know, like things, everything goes up and down. Um, Sometimes things go very down for a very long time, but the pendulum will start to swing back, even if it's slow, even if it's slight. Um, And if you're in a really dark place, um, I'm really glad I didn't kill myself. And I think, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's helpful, but I think about that a lot about how for so many years things were so bleak and it just my head didn't seem a good place to continue living in and I just couldn't see 
any of the good around me really. And I just, I wake up some mornings and I'm like, I got so close to not being here for this. And just finding stupid ways to keep yourself going is, is really like one of my favorite bits of advice. Um, and also the world would be a worse place without you. I think maybe that's hard to hear, but it's true. There, even if like the smallest reasons, the world would be a much worse place without you. You're affecting so much more around you than you even know. And if there's anywhere that feels safe to reach out, do it. And you'll be so surprised people will try and help. That's so good to know. Thank you. The world is a much better place with you in it, Jenny Jaffe. Thank Thank you you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so great. And, um, And just because I'm literally sitting here in tears and no. really um, and really affected by everything you've said and everything I've heard. Um, do me and do us all a favor. Let's let's end this on a light note and a positive note. Tell okay, us your cool. favorite joke. Oh my god, my favorite joke ever on the spot. On oh the spot. god. Okay, it's probably not going to be a joke I've ever I've written. I'm going to have to think of like the, what's the funniest thing in the entire universe. Well, maybe not the I'm entire gonna think, universe. No, I'm going to go big or go home on this one. All right, all right. Um, it's a good philosophy for life. I think the funniest thing in the whole world to me is it's a combination of two things. It's um, everything about Amy Sedaris's performance on Strangers with Candy. And it's those goats that fall down when they get scared. <laughs> those are the two funniest things in the whole world. I love it. On that note, um, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much. It's been really good talking to you. Thank you for listening. This is Jessica Lips with Lips on Life. We'll see you next time.